Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and here it is, another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. This is the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession over 100 years ago. Now, let's step back into the ring and back into time as we get wall to wall and tree top tall. With the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, Matt, pretty good game last night in the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, man. That one was really super, I think. Man. <laughs> I think it earned a name. That was a heck of a game. Did you have a particular team you were pulling for, or were you kind of idle? I was kind of idle for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and this one, I thought both those were two great teams. And yeah. Wow, what a heck of a game. Can't get much better than that. To me, the best part were, were the meatballs and the hot dogs that we had. And we had some crab dip that was really good. So, yeah. yeah that was, <laughs> so that's the last feast for me. And so now I'm really got to get get into it and get back into the gym and maybe a few pounds less in a couple of months. So that's, maybe that's going to be my plan from here on out. All right. Hey, listen, in the last studcast, you said last week, would be the final hidden history lesson of the Boxing and Wrestling Commission series. That it was going to feature how Vince McMahon Jr. handled his athletic commission problem in 1989. I love the title for this one. McMahon's Greed, Betrays, and Double Cage. That's that's a built-in title right there that's, that's going to say something. Well, I think, you know, uh, Dave, this, this stud cast to me, I think, has a chance to be historic. Uh, I'm going to take a deep dive not only into McMahon and his blatant disrespect to the sport and the thousands of wrestlers that had protected it, some for all their lives. Uh, then we're going to go deeper, uh, taking a look maybe at today's TV audience versus before McMahon and what happened to the sport's popularity since uh, his 1989 encounter with the New Jersey Senate and admitting wrestling was scripted. Mm. So you have added a lot more research on this subject since we talked last week, for sure. Yes, that's for certain. I definitely have, man. Uh, and uh, it's been really, really a, an eye-opener for me uh, by doing so. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I finished my research on this subject, you know, I saw some extremely, I think, erroneous information on Google, bragging that McMahon had made the sport bigger than ever. And I'm sorry, but I can't help but dispute that 
and I have the proof, uh, and then then what they say is absolutely incorrect. Mm. All right, we don't normally get saddled up this fast for a stud cast. I have a feeling this one is going to be really special. But first, where else are we going to ride today in addition to the stuff you've already alluded to? Well, the last part of this one is also going to be special, I think. Uh, We're going to be going into that 10,000-seat Mobile, Alabama main arena for three straight record-breaking weeks in that arena. Uh, The first week is going to feature the first-ever Southeastern Double Cage Night with back-to-back cage matches in the steel cage. And then I'll break down another great TV show promoting the entire card, the results of the matches, and give people the attendances in all three of the major cities, uh, all of which were going to get the same card. All right, cool deal. I mean, you really have loaded this one up, Stud. So tell us how and why Vince McMahon Jr. had a problem with the state of New Jersey over the tax to be charged on his live wrestling event or events that are going to take place there. Well, we'll we'll get there, but uh, first I want to back up a couple of years before this altercation uh, with him and the state of New Jersey uh, to what he did to the territories after he got his wrestling show on the national television station. And he decided he wanted to be, obviously, the only promoter in wrestling in America and uh, actually in most of the world. And he would have had it all absolutely all of it if he could and he's pretty much got that now so he had absolutely no respect for anybody in the business he began to buy talent from just about every territory that was in the business at that time almost all of which had been there far longer than he had so his greed basically took aim to begin with at the nwa the national wrestling alliance the oldest and largest wrestling organization in the history of the sport He started using the stars that he had taken away from many of those territories and and also his national TV dominance. He had the only national program, and he took those NWA stars right back into the promoter's town uh, whenever possible, right into the same buildings that they had operated in for years. And he took those stars that had learned a lot of their skills working for other owners that Vince is now trying to kill And uh, pretty soon, he had basically choked them out of business all over the country. So this started about 1986 Mm. when he landed the first time, for the first time in more than 30 years, a national wrestling TV show. So thanks to him, by 1990, pretty much everybody had been, had given their, who had given their life, man, in the wrestling business, especially my family and, and lots of other families. Uh, all the promoters, wrestlers, referees, they're pretty much all gone. Fans didn't know it at the time, but also gone forever was going to be the wrestling that they all loved. So then came the end of the 1980 decade, the first five years of which were probably the best the sport had ever seen. Wow, I mean, business was unbelievable. First five years in the 1980s. McMahon was running now at this point about 1986, live events all over the country, especially in the few areas that were still operating. He was basically determined to kill all of his competition. So most companies were gone. But sadly, for a greedy man, the old state boxing and wrestling commissions that we've been talking about for about four weeks here, 
uh, from the past, they were still there. And they were taxing him 6 to 10% of the gross gate hmm. on every live event across this, all these states that still had athletic commissions in the country. Hmm. So, again, his greed and desire for more money raised its ugly head. His next transgression against the sport began and ended in New Jersey. Uh, running, He was running so many live events, he had to figure a way to get his greedy hands on that last 6 to 10% that the states were taken. No matter what he had to do, it didn't care. That, that he was just dead set on making it happen. So he had been dealing with this, I think, for some time, and finally came to a decision that was probably easy for him because he never had any real respect for wrestling, nor wrestlers, uh, nor the people around him. So otherwise, he would never have taken away the jobs and ruined the lives of thousands of wrestlers and promoters and destroyed their futures if he was any type of decent person. So he decided, rather than be subjected to these state regulations, boxing and wrestling commissions, and to avoid the tax on the sport completely, he would admit wrestling wasn't real and was scripted. He saw this, I think, basically as a golden opportunity. So every time I think about this, Dave, I think of David Schultz, who was trained by my grandfather's brother, Herb Webb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schultz is famous for, obviously, the slap heard around the world on reporter John Stossel. Mm-hmm. Dr. D stood up for the sport, and Vince McMahon Jr. as being real, you know, uh, Dr. D, obviously, didn't let Stossel say this is fake and not do something. He stood up for the business as being real. And because of that, he suffered huge consequences as a result because his greedy, cowardly boss wouldn't stand up for him. (laughs) So in 1989, with an upcoming event in New Jersey and to avoid the state's boxing and wrestling commission fee, a spokesman for Vince Company testified before the New Jersey State Senate that pro wrestling was strictly entertainment, a performance rather than a legitimate sport. As a result, a bill was passed to deregulate pro wrestling in the state based on that fact, and it was not a, that it wasn't a legitimate sport, and that it, and at that point, it could not be taxed as such because it wasn't a sport. So instantly, professional wrestling was recognized as no longer real. Man, I feel for David Schultz. He, he wrestled for you in both southeast, both southeastern territories at that. And he was a fellow Tennessean. Did Vince McMahon Jr. personally ever admit that it wasn't real? Well, both McMahon and his wife, Linda, under oath, admitted their matches were scripted. And they used this admission basically to get the WWE away from athletic commissions oversight in as many states, obviously, as they possibly could. So I have a Vince McMahon quote here, Dave, from the Boston Globe newspaper. Mm -hmm. This is something that I found on Google. And uh, someone asked Vince, they asked Vince if wrestling was fake. And uh, here's what he said, and I quote, he said, I really don't respond to that question. I think it was done to death in the 1920s. But I hasten to say that we are in the sports entertainment field. It's not important to determine what wrestling is or is not. It doesn't fall into one particular category. It's not in the category of sport in the strictest sense of the word. 
I think this quote is where he got the term sports entertainment. So I'm about finished uh, with with this part of it, Dave. Uh, And just one more thought. Generations of wrestling families, thousands of wrestlers, did their best to promote wrestling as 100% legitimate for at least 90 years before Vince McMahon Jr. came along. So from 1900 to 1990, uh, before betrayed Vince betrayed them all, uh, everybody stood up for the business. So yet Vince McMahon Jr. proudly proclaimed uh, that it was and always had been a performance. And, and worse than those words to me is the fact that he said just to escape some tax and some state regulations, he did it to save, he chose money over the respect and protection of a sport by thousands of tremendous wrestlers before before he came along that uh, took care of the business. So knowing that fact, those wrestlers gla- gladly, uh, you know, t- t- would have torn him into little pieces if they could today. You know? And, and I, my grandfather, Roy, would be at the head of that line. And, and so would the trader's father, Vince McMahon Sr., who was a great guy. Yeah, they would have gone David Schultz on him, no doubt. All right, I really don't doubt that a bit. This has been really intriguing. In fact, all four of these hidden history lessons have really been great that you've revealed over the last number of weeks. I think you said there was something else you saw when doing the research for this that you wanted to talk about, too. You want to go into that? Yeah, I do, man. I mean, uh, you know, I certainly do. The The last two lines on Google about this subject, uh, about wrestling being scripted, was, and, and again, I want to quote, here's what Google says about McMahon and, uh, and him basically, uh, uh, <laughs> basically uh, giving up uh, the business. It, it said, it turns out nobody really cared. Fans didn't care if it wasn't real as long as they were enjoying what they were seeing. Mm. Professional wrestling would become more popular than it had ever been after that admission. Now, that's what I totally disagree with. And whoever wrote this, I disagree with, uh, I don't think they ever did any studying here. So, uh, you know, and, and that part about the fans didn't really care if it wasn't real and that professional wrestling uh, had uh, become even more popular than ever after McMahon admitted that it was scripted. You know, uh, so what I'm going to do, Dave, in this, I'm going to prove that neither of those two statements are true. Okay, well, how do you propose to do that, Stud? Well, I'm tired of hearing about how Vince McMahon Jr. and a few other wrestling companies today made the sport more popular than it ever was. Now, we're going to compare today to 1985, basically. And if that alone isn't true, the fact that, uh, you know, the sport isn't more popular, and I can prove that, that that, that the sport is much less popular uh, than it was in the old days, then it's going to also make the statement on Google that fans didn't really care whether wrestling was scripted or not Mm. false as well. Mm. Do you really think you can prove that wrestling is less popular today than before Vince Vince Jr. came along? And if that's true, it had something to do with his saying 
wrestling was scripted. Yes, I definitely do, Dave. And I'm about to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that professional wrestling was far more popular before Vince McMahon Jr. came along. I'm going to do it by using real figures based upon today's number of TV viewers compared to the year, let's say, 1985. That's before Vince started attacking the territories. And then I'm going to compare the attendances at live events in the year of 1985 when almost all the territories were still operating uh, to today, what they're doing today with live events. And I, it's going to show conclusively that not only did McMahon not make the sport more popular, but basically not even half as popular as before he got control. Hmm. All right. So I've never heard anyone attempt this. So uh, best of luck. <laughs> okay. So, so let's start with the Google's own TV audience figures. They, you know, Google has these. Uh, you can go and see what every every week's TV audience is in today's wrestling. And uh, you can go back. So I want to go back just six weeks ago to mm-hmm. the last week in 2023. There were 4,003,000 fans watching five TV shows uh, in America. WWE Raw, WWE NXT, WWE SmackDown, AEW Dynamite, and AEW Rampage. Hmm. I'm not sure if these figures include Canada and worldwide, but for the sake of this comparison and and basically to give today's wrestling the benefit of the doubt, I'll I'll say this 4 million viewers represents only American viewers. Hmm. So let's go back to 1985 to get the TV audience for wrestling in America only, okay? We're not talking about any other country here. Just going to take 1985 before Vince got involved. Uh, There was no Google, right, back Mm -hmm. in 85, Mm -hmm. or or anyone else keeping up with exactly how many viewers there were, uh, like they do today. That wasn't being done in America. But in 1985, there were at least 15 or more territories, and I can ensure you that there was no place in this country where fans could not watch a wrestling TV show. The country was saturated with wrestling. And and it was on everywhere, all across the nation, in every TV market. (laughs) It was exactly like today, basically, on nationally, Mm -hmm. and everywhere except it was coming from 15 or more different companies and promoters who were all producing their own TV shows, Mm -hmm. rather than one company or two companies producing just one or two TV shows. To do this now, as accurately as I possibly can, Dave, I'm going to use, uh, I'm I'm going to use my own wrestling company, Continental Championship Wrestling, in 1985. Mm -hmm. The only company, it's the only company that I know exactly what the numbers of viewers watching was. You know, uh, the figures were compiled by Nielsen and Arbitron. TV rating companies. Uh, they sent out four rating books a year with the numbers for any any wrestling promoter that wanted to see how many phone homes they were getting into and how many people were watching. And uh, so those figures were compiled, obviously, by Nelson and Armatron. And uh, they were sent four times a year out to, your, to the television stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could uh, look at every time slot in America uh, to see where your show was on the air. And, uh, and you know how important these TV numbers uh, are to me, Dave. 
right? Oh, I sure do. In fact, I bet we're going to hear about TV, the, the TV rating books later in this studcast that you were currently going through. So no doubt, we, we definitely will. Because when it was rating period across the country, every promoter everywhere studied those numbers and those Arbitron and Nielsen books. And in 1985, Continental Wrestling was on 10 TV stations in four states. Uh, it was on in Atlanta, Georgia. It was on in the small town in the northeastern uh, Mississippi, Columbus, Mississippi. It was on Knoxville, Chattanooga, and Tri-Cities in the ten Tennessee area, all of three eastern Tennessee cities. And it was on Birmingham, Mobile, Montgomery, Dothan, and Florence and Alabama. Now, all of these cities, of all of these cities, only Atlanta was in the top 25 in population. So almost all of these cities were basically considered small populations. They were small populations compared to Atlanta. And Atlanta was barely in the top 25. So the combined population of these 10 markets was only 4 million people. And with only 10 stations with a combined population of 4 million people, we had 320,000 fans watching wrestling every week. And that came straight out of the Arbitron and Nielsen books. And that meant 8% mm. of the total population in that 4 million area was watching our show each week in those areas. So now I know that 8% of the total population in those 10 markets are watching the show was considered a big number for that time. But we were one of the only the few wrestling companies getting the 70 to 80 shares, man, on the all these television stations. Mm -hmm. uh, and our wrestling show on all 10 stations was the most wrestling show on weekends from sign on in the morning to prime time that night. So also bear in mind, 1985, that was before cable TV expanded. So basically, in all these markets throughout the whole country, you only had four television stations. And so uh, it was a different day and time than what they're dealing with today. In 1985, America's population was 238 million. And virtually every home had a TV, obviously, right? And if all the wrestling companies in the country had been getting that 8% of the country's audience, then... Uh, we, with that 238 million people in the country watching, it would have meant that America's TV audience would have been 19,040,000 as compared to the 4,000, I mean, the 4,003,000 that, that uh, they're, they're getting today uh, watching. So, so our TV show obviously had an amazing number, and I'm sure very few of the other companies were that we're doing that 8% range. So not all the territories across the company, country were getting that 70, 80 share. But wrestling was an extremely popular product all across the country. So let's take that 8% population that's watching and let's cut it in half. And uh, there's no way it could be lower than that, but it only proved my point even better. So if those watching across the country where only 4% of the total population, half what was watching us, and there were 238 million people in the country in 1985, there would have been 9,520,000 fans watching each week in America. 
<laughs> Compare wow. that to Vince's 4,000, 4,003,000 viewers watching in the last week of 2023. Hmm. That's more than five and a half million fans watching in 1985 compared to today. More than five and a half million more fans than watching in today's wrestling. Wow. You're, you're saying wrestling was at least twice as popular in 1985 twice as popular in 85 as it is today. That's what those numbers say. And uh, yes, I'm saying it, and the figures prove it. And it's even bigger than that. In 1985, the population in America was 238 million. By 2023, where Vince is at at this point, and that 4 million, 38 years later, the population had grown almost 100 million people to 335 million in 2023. So today's number of people watching is more than 5 million less than was watching in 1985. And that's not counting the additional 100 million more people living in the country than was living in living there in 1985. So imagine how many people would fans would be fans now if there had been no Vince McMahon Jr. to destroy the territories and change it all. Imagine if the sport had been allowed to continue to build fans for the last 38 years from almost 10 million fans in 1985. Who knows what they would have had now? Uh, 38 years later, maybe 20 million, easily 20 million fans now. Well, that definitely kills the idea that Google proposed that wrestling had become even more popular after Vince McMahon said that it was scripted. Right. And uh, so uh, so that's not basically the end of it, Dave. Uh, there's one last way to prove my point, even, even more so. Think about all the live wrestling events that were going on across America in 1985. All of these territories, uh, all the, there were arenas being sold out everywhere. And all the major cities had wrestling every week. Uh, event after event, thousands of live events going on across the country that filled the fans thirst for more, man. They love their wrestling. So compare that to what wrestling companies are doing now. Most of them only having one live event a week and they have that just so they can record it and use it as a television show. So instead of the big crowds like there was in 1985, they're for these TV shows, there's so little interest now in that one live event these days mm -hmm. that they have to give away thousands of free tickets to get a house full <laughs> for their television program. <laughs> so then when they get the building full enough, if they don't get it there, they seat everybody on one side, put up black curtains, and they're extremely careful not to show that there's empty seats everywhere in the building. So I hope for those who believe what Google had to say about fans not caring about whether wrestling was scripted or not, and that it was more popular now, you know, uh, that it had ever been, gives this some thought. To me, looking back where it all started to fall apart, I think it began when Vince McMahon admitted wrestling was all scripted. If only the Google people, man, had been around in 1985. Mm -hmm. See how popular wrestling was before Vince killed it. Wow. 
I have to ask one last question. How did Vince McMahon Jr. lose more than 5 million fans in the 38 years from 1985 to today? Great question. Uh, It seems almost impossible, doesn't it? I think he started closing down territories in different parts of the country. And, And their popular TV wrestling shows that had these good ratings and people had been watching them for years, they just started disappearing. And in between 1985 and 1990, one of the few wrestling TV shows left for fans was Vince's national TV show. And that show was completely different than the wrestling TV shows fans had seen for years and uh, was going to become even worse. It was not nearly as good and uh, and I, I got reasons that, uh, for that. Uh, millions had lost their favorite TV stars, what happened. Mm-hmm. And they lost also their live events. And they obviously didn't like what McMahon was presenting as the alternative. So his indoor fireworks couldn't replace the fireworks that used to happen in the rings across America. Uh, beautiful, basic wrestling was replaced by all talk and a blown-up big-time stage production. Basic angles that made sense were replaced by backstage dressing room talk and no action in the ring. Drop kicks and finishing holes replaced by flip-flop and fly maneuvers, man, that made absolutely no sense as wrestling moves. And I could go on and on, man. Uh, basically, I think during that time, millions of what is now called old school fans turned their backs on the sport in a five-year period of time there, and especially when they heard him say that uh, it's scripted, and they never returned to the sport. And and I've literally heard thousands of old-school fans come up to me and say, I don't watch it anymore. And I have to admit, I'm one of those. I don't watch it. So to finish this, Dave, Vince McMahon Jr., to me, destroyed professional wrestling for millions of fans. And now he's back in the news with his present-day situation. Uh, (laughs) So salacious and horrible to me, I'm not even going to comment on it. Uh, There's an old wrestling saying, man, that best describes this situation and his situation. What goes around comes around. And that's what he deserves. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was wondering if you were going to mention the modern day, what the, 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 the current situation with Vince, and I think you just did. Uh, you kind of summed that up. Absolutely amazing so far. I thought there was no way you were going to be, to be able to really prove your point, but you, you know the numbers don't lie, and your explanation of what happened to those fans that disappeared I think is right on. I don't know how you, you follow this, Rod. But we're going to do that when the break continues. After the break, we're going to come back and see how you do follow this. When this stud cast continues, stay with us. We got a lot more coming. Hey, I almost forgot, Ron. You mentioned earlier you had something special you wanted to say, something specific you, specific you wanted to mention on this break. What, what you got? Well, uh, we got another Asta stud. I have another Asta stud. These things have become so popular. Number 14 is going to be airing this Saturday on the 17th of February. Uh, and uh, and fans can still leave questions if they'd like to. It's a question and answer show that's on the Southeastern Rewind channel, uh, YouTube. And so, uh, you know, if they want to leave a question, they can go to my uh, Facebook, uh, 
Ron Fuller, Tennessee Stud. If they're not already a friend there, all you got to do is like and follow me there. And uh, you can find that post about this and you can leave your question there. And uh, we're going to on Saturday, the 17th, uh, be airing the next Ask the Stud number 14. 14 of these. Can't hardly believe it. But uh, these things have become popular for fans. They really love them. And, uh, and I'm glad to do them. I enjoy them. I have a lot of fun with them. All right, Studcast fans, don't forget, Saturday the 17th, that's when the next Ask the Stud is going to be on Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Go to YouTube on the search bar, put in Southeastern Rewind. It is the first thing that comes up. You are going to love it. All right, sorry, Stud, but I can't stop thinking about the first part of this Studcast as we get back in. What was on the card in Mobile, Alabama's main arena? And the date is going to be Tuesday, February 12th of 1980. Well, we got an old, you know, an old fan favorite man who's going to be returning for his first match in gosh, uh, way more than a year. It's Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker Charlie Cook is going to be coming back to Southeastern. He's going to be facing Big Bill Dromo. Uh, Roy Lee Welch was going up against the fabulous Don Fargo, still around and still doing good in 1980. Terry Orndor was going to be meeting the Big C. And for the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship, Tony Charles was defending against the man who had beat the wrestling pro in the Loser Leaf Southeastern match the week before, Randy Rose. Then for the first time ever in Southeastern Gulf Coast, we're going to have two back-to-back championship steel cage matches. And in the first one, Rob and I were defending the Southeastern Tag Belts against Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin. In the second cage match, going to be for the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship with the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson, and he was defending against Joe LaDuke. Wow, that's a that's a great card. Charlie Cook returning, Don Fargo, a U.S. Junior Championship match, and two cage matches to end the night. It sounds like you needed the the main arena for this one because it sounds like it was really going to be big. So, how about the TV show that promoted and set up this big card? Well, it opened with Rob and I with, with our belts sitting at the set with Charlie Platt. And it started right off with a pop. Uh, Charlie told everybody that this week's rating period championship match, which we were having uh, during February, and it was rating period time. We talked about that, mentioned that earlier in the show here, that uh, we were going to have a championship match on each week. And this week, the championship match was going to be for the TV trophy of the Mongolian Stomper, and he was going to be defending on TV against Joe LaDuke. And uh, wow, what a pop that one got. And uh, so Rob and I followed that, uh, watching our last title defense in Mobile against Jimmy Golden and Norville Austin. We were in a Texas tornado match with all four of us in the ring at the same time. And uh, it, it showed them leaving the ring many times. Either one of them or both of them sometimes would get out of the ring. They just kept getting out of the ring rather than get beat. And because of that, uh, you know, they were going to get one last uh, shot at the belts. They actually left the ring at the end of the match and uh, it just got counted out. And uh, so so this was going to, putting a steel cage around that ring ensured 
that they weren't going to be running for this one. <laughs> and uh, that got another pop when we said that to the fans. <laughs> so as soon as we finished, Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, uh, they hit the ring. They were in the first TV match. And they absolutely destroyed their two opponents. It was, oh, wow. <laughs> I thought they hurt, they hurt both of them big time. It sounds like they were ready for the cage. So who was next on the big show? Well, a very popular wrestler, man, that had been in the first Southeastern Gulf Coast crew in 1978, and we talked about him just a second ago, former NFL linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Charlie Cook. And uh, fans were really happy to see Charlie back, man. He was a great wrestler. Wow, what a great talent. And Ray, they let him know, man, as soon as he went to the ring. And he looked just as strong as ever, man, and got his first win after returning. All right, so personality profile, take us there. Well, it was a special one. Uh, it was shot earlier in the morning, uh, not far from the TV station in Dothan, Alabama, uh, at the old building down there where we ran. And uh, the building was empty, the ring was set up, and so was the cage around it. So Charlie Platt was joined inside the cage by Joel Duke, Robert, and myself to talk about the first ever double cage night in Southeastern history. Both events were for Southeastern Championship. The single and the tag, tag belts were both, both going to be at stake. And fans had already seen Robert in my tag match with Golden and Austin from the week before, earlier in the show. And they knew uh, we were in a cage match. Uh, Joel Duke explained his reason for wanting a cage match. As he and Charlie Watts his last title match uh, with the Mongolian Stomper. And they talked over it. Uh, you know, they were in the cage, but uh, we had the uh, monitor right there where they could see the event. And uh, and then this event had uh, that match had the civilian interference from Don Carson. Imagine that, you know, and that cost him, obviously, uh, Joe, the opportunity to win the belt back. So Joe said, you know, I want a cage. I don't want him getting in. So Rob and I wanted the cage match. <laughs> we wanted the cage to keep our opponents in the ring. And Joe wanted the cage match to keep Carson out of the ring. <laughs> so either way, win or lose, the three of us were going to make wrestling history in the first ever double cage match night. That's a great idea. So three of the men going to be in the cage on this historic night, standing in it, and talking about what was to come. So what was the next TV segment? How'd that go? Well, it opened with Randy Rose at the set with Charlie and uh, watching his loser leave Southeastern win over the legendary wrestling pro, Leon Baxter. And Rose called it uh, the biggest win in his career so far. And uh, because of it, he said he was getting his first ever shot at the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship. And he said, I'm not going to waste the opportunity. I'm going to bring that belt home, man. I'm going to bring it back next week. All right, good deal. So who was in the ring for the third TV match? Tony Charles, the, the man who's going to be facing Randy Rose uh, for his belt. And Tony was still having problems with his injured knee that he had hurt accidentally two weeks earlier in his title defense against the wrestling pro. And uh, it was re-injured in Mobile four days earlier before the TV by the Big C, who hit him with a loaded glove on his knee, on purpose, obviously. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And everyone could tell it was bothering him in the match, especially Randy Rose, who had left the set 
and he came running back to the set uh, after being there earlier to bring to the fans' attention that he, that Big C had done exactly what he and, and he had talked to him about to do for him. He said, "Go in there and hurt Charles's knee so I can win the belt next week." <laughs> so uh, you know he re-injured Charles's knee, and that was why the United States Junior Heavyweight Belt. Uh, he said, was as good as mine right now. So about that time in the match, Tony Charles hooked his opponent with the rolling cradle, got a three count for the win. Used to win a lot of his matches with those fabulous throws, but the, his knee was obviously still hurting him some. And so when his hand was being raised by the referee, Rose shot in the ring. He's right there with Charlie. He just left the set, shot right in the ring behind Charles and clipped his injured knee, man. God, he caught him with a, a tackle from behind, mm. man, knee high. And uh, Tony collapsed on his bad leg. And uh, Rose then grabbed his injured leg. He drug him over to the corner of the ring, got out of the ring, and he wrapped his leg around the steel ring post. And uh, Tony had to be helped out of the ring, man, before this was all over. Wow. Randy Rose was really getting some big-time heat. The wrestling pro gone because of him, and now Tony Charles is in a real hurt and maybe going to lose his belt because of it. So it's really been a good TV show so far. So was it time for the Southeastern TV trophy match, or were you building up to that? Oh, man, it, it was, man, and, and the crowd was ready for this one. By, uh, you, know, they, you could tell that on the opening when uh, – Charlie announced what was going to be the special championship match for this TV. So Joe came to the ring first, and everybody in the studio stood up for him. Uh, and then the Mongolian stomper was all business this time. He didn't come charging the TV audience this time. His manager, Don Carson, uh, he went, stomper just went straight in the ring. He was business. You could tell his attitude was there, was right. And here came Don Carson carrying that huge television trophy. He got in the ring with it, and he put the trophy right in the center of the ring, and both men were introduced. And uh, and those at home who had never seen these two in action, and there were millions of them out there watching it, hadn't seen it, they were about to get a taste of the Leduc and Stomper War, man. So they tore into each other as soon as the bell rang. And uh, first Leduc started bleeding, and then the Stomper ended up bleeding. And uh, both their heads, at this point, they had had these horribly bloody matches. Uh, they, they had a lot of scars showing, man, from this war. So uh, they never stopped pounding each other. And neither did the studio crowd ever quiet down. They were just going nuts the whole time. So they ended up in one corner of the ring, and they started spinning around each other, down the ropes, and exchanging these crushing, man, at chest blows. Uh, and then Carson kept reaching for the Duke's boots while they were spinning down the ropes and mm. trying to trip him. You know, obviously he's wanting to save the Stomper's trophy, but ultimately he failed and grabbed Stomper's boot by mistake, jerked Stomper's feet out from under him, and the Duke, the, the giant lumberjack man, crashed down his 300-plus pounds on top of the Mongolian. Referee was right there, and he counted him out. The studio exploded. The stomper went straight out of the ring for Don Carson, and Carson ran to the dressing room. So he beat a hasty retreat to the dressing room. He knew the stomper was pretty darn upset by losing his trophy. 
So uh, me, Rob, Tony, and Charlie Cook, we, we went to the ring to congratulate Joe. Man, the studio was all on their feet. They were going crazy. You know, and uh, there was a celebration going on, man. They had, they had already, uh, uh, it, it had consumed the studio. They were just nuts. So the huge trophy was handed to Joe. And, uh, and the first place do you think he went, Dave, uh, was right straight out of that ring and right into the bleachers with his trophy, <laughs> sitting with his fans, man. Oh, you bet. That's a great way to end a TV show. It was with the first championship of the month win on TV. All right, so what happened in Mobile, Alabama, three days later in the big building, the 10,000-seat building? Charlie Cook's homecoming uh, in all three of the major cities, Montgomery and Dothan included, was got himself a win over Big Bill Dromo in all three of those matches. Don Fargo was just too much for Roy Lee Welch. Uh, the Big C not only beat Terry Orndorff every night that week, but on Orndorff's last night, which was a Friday night in Dothan, Alabama, Big C hit him with his loaded glove, knocked him unconscious, gave him a concussion. And uh, Terry had wrestled his last match ever in Southeastern. Wow. You know, uh, we had a doctor look at him. He said, uh, I think he's got a concussion. He, he said he can't wrestle for at least a month. Mm. And uh, so... Terry, that was it, basically. It was his last match. He went home uh, and from Southeastern. But one year later, man, another Orndorff brother named Paul was going to come to Southeastern. Hmm. And this guy was going to be on his way to the Hall of Fame. So Randy Rose let his compelling desire to win Tony Charles's belt get him disqualified in the United States Junior Championship match. And Tony got his hand raised. And then in the first cage match of the night, Robert Norvell uh, ended up uh, both of them bloody in this match. Uh, Norvell Lawson, uh, toward the end of it, was trying to climb out of the ring, and I was on top of the cage with him. Uh, the referee was underneath us trying to get both of us off the top of the cage and back into the ring. And on the uh, other side of the cage, Jimmy Golden and Robert were fighting. So uh, Big C came down to the ring close enough, uh, you know, to where they were fighting that uh, Golden saw, saw, saw Big C there, and he hit Rob with a low shot. Rob went down. Big C threw his black glove over the top of the cage to Jimmy. Golden loaded his hand with it, put it on, loaded it, hit Robert, took the glove off, dropped it over the cage back to Big C and Big C ran back to the dressing room. <laughs> Referee never saw him. Uh, Golden covered Robert while I was still working on Norvell. The referee saw Golden on top of Rob for a pin. He left us. He counted Rob out. Golden and Austin won the Southeastern Tag Belts. It kind of ended me and Rob's five weeks run as champions, tag champions. Then the last cage match was, you know, it's normal war, man, between these two giants, uh, Stomper and Leduc, and uh, and this one because it was in the cage, I think had a lot to do with it. This may have been the bloodiest one ever. And at the end of the match, referee was intentionally hit by the stomper, but wasn't disqualified because it's a cage match. You couldn't be disqualified in a cage match. So the referee went down hard. Leduc had stomper going, and then uh, Carson uh, on the outside of the cage. Uh, 
he threw a piece of rope. It was about three feet long over top of the cage. Leduc didn't see it. Stomper stopped Leduc, and then he grabbed that rope, and he wrapped it around Joe Leduc's neck, and he drug him over to the side of the cage. Referee still down. He leaned uh, Joe up against it, and he passed the two ends of the rope through the wire, and he and the rope was still around Joe Leduc's throat. Oh. So Don Carson just grabbed that rope and just started hanging on it on the outside. He was hanging Joe Leduc, <laughs> literally. And uh, so Carson continued to choke him from the outside of the cage until LeDuc passed out. Wow. He just went out. And uh, so uh, then as soon as he went out, uh, then uh, Carson uh, pulled the rope, one end of it, and pulled the rope right back out of the cage. And uh, Stomper uh, pulled LeDuc over the end, the middle of the ring, got on top of him, and LeDuc was counted out. Had right. to be carried out, too. And that took a bunch of people. Yeah, you bet. The Hills won both cage matches. So I bet that never or didn't happen often, at least. And knowing Mobile, I bet they had a hard time getting back to the dressing room alive. So how was the attendances in the three major cities on this card? It was near an all-time record, man, uh, for Montgomery uh, at 5,300. Uh, Dothan had 5,400. Mobile had 9,100. So for all three city com- cities combined, that card drew 19,800 fans in three nights. Uh, there weren't very many big territories that were doing that kind of business. Oh, no doubt. What a stud cast this has been. And believe it or not, we are going to have time for a learning tree question. <laughs> so here we go. Quentin Barbary, I hope I said that right, Alberta, Canada, asked, quote, saw your post on Facebook with a photo of a WWE Raw event in the Knoxville Coliseum. Did you go? And if you did, how did you like it? And did the photo bring back any memories of your matches there? Hmm. Gosh, man, that's some great questions, Mr. Barbary. Um, so let me start off with your first question about uh, did I go? Uh, no, I didn't go to the WWE event, and uh, and I, I didn't even actually know know anything about it. But since it was being televised, I have to be changing channels, and it was on a Monday night, and there was Raw, there was you know, and uh, so and and then uh, I kind of thought the building looked familiar, you know, like wow, I, that. I've been in that building, so uh, but and so I watched about 15 minutes of what was going on in the ring, and uh, which is 15 minutes more WWE than I had ever watched. <laughs> watched that, you know. So I just wanted to see, you know, and and the, I kept being the, you know, kind of, kind of a, uh, just really trying to figure out where is this building. So to answer your second question, if I liked it, uh, did I like it? Uh, no, I didn't like it a bit. I mean, it was it was it was very confusing. It was several tag teams in some kind of match where the action just kept continuing on, and I saw n- not one wrestling move that I recognized, other than a few n- numerous suplexes, too many of them basically to count. And every one of those suplexes got kicked out on. 
I mean, how, how can you have 40, 42 suplexes and nobody gets counted out? You know, so and I saw guys take countless shots in every form of fashion and uh, and they kicked out of everything that happened to them. I saw a ring full of acrobats performing something that looked choreographed, but obviously it hadn't been worked on long enough to make it look real. Uh, and and this this was about eight wrestlers uh, from I guess four different teams. In the middle of all this stuff going on, they all congregated in one corner of the ring, and uh, they joined their bodies together. They started piling on top of each other and joining their bodies together into the shape of a pyramid, and then all of them with their backs to the ring all together at the same time suplexed each other. And crashed down together all on the ring. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I mean, it was supposed to be wrestling and all competing against each other. Uh, so much for believability, man. So, which in my day was absolutely critical to having a great match. So then the last thing I saw was one man standing on the top rope and he jumped off on four or five other wrestlers. They're just standing there on the building floor, looking up, waiting for him to jump. And then when he landed on them, they scattered like bowling pins when he landed on top of them. You know, and uh, and I couldn't, at that point, I couldn't take any more. I mean, uh, there was very little there to, to even be called wrestling. Absolutely no believability in that last move at all. In my day, Dave, if a guy had crawled up on the top rope and I'm standing down there on the Coliseum floor mm -hmm. and he jumped off for me, I'd just step out of the way and let him take a hellacious bump. <laughs> right? How it's could a, anybody call that wrestling? It's a concrete floor after all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't hurt him any worse than that. Right. You know, why would I catch him? Right. So to answer your last question, Quentin, I think that was your name, sir. Uh, that shot of the building, though, looking somewhat full, definitely brought back a memory to me, man. I finally, toward the end of this, recognized this building. And it brought back a memory of a match I had in that building in the Coliseum on April 28th, 1977, that same building. Me, Russ, and Harley raced for the NWA World Championship. We wrestled to a one-hour time limit draw. And there's a little difference in, the, in this building that night. It was almost full uh, for the WWE. But the difference was that the night of April 28th in that same building, it was so packed. It was the largest crowd to ever see a sports event in the history of that Coliseum. Wow. And that record still stands 47 years later. Wow. That, I don't doubt that at all. And what a way to end this fantastic stud cast. I think this may be one of the best stud casts so far. Episode 337. Out of 337 episodes. And that's a big statement right there. So this has really been a remarkable, I say historic event, covering so many topics, so much depth. Depth. So where do you ride next week in the next Studcast? Well, I'm going to take us way back, man, uh, for the next hidden history lesson uh, to my grandfather's day. 
You know, we're going to talk about when wrestlers and carnies, those were people that worked the traveling carnivals, worked together. And, uh, and where wrestlers learned the carnies language and uh, where the term kayfabe came from. Uh, you know, uh, really going back in time. And on the southeastern side of things, uh, Harley Race was headed into the territory. And two stud casts from now, he's going to be defending his NWA 10 pounds of gold in Mobile, Alabama. But before he got there, and we're talking about 44 years ago in 1980, almost exactly the same week, 12 wrestlers were going to get a chance to get that title shot at him in a one-night tournament. And these tournaments were wrestling heaven for fans. Wow, they loved these tournaments, and they got a lot of wrestling. This one was going to have 11 matches before they were going to find his opponent, who his opponent was going to be. And then maybe Dave, wow. hopefully we'll have an, even another learning tree question. So it sounds like we're riding into another great one, no doubt about it. So I think some of the things you've said in the early part of this one are definitely going to be quoted by wrestling historians for a long time. These studcasts just get absolutely better and better. Hey, folks, you know how to get hooked up with Ron on social media, on Facebook. Find Ron at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Like, follow him there, and automatically become friends with a living legend. Exact same thing on Twitter, now known as X. Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Follow him there also. Check out the fantastic website, tnstud.com. TN, as in Tennessee, stud.com. This studcast is going to be there with every studcast ever done. Shop the stud store where you can you can get 43 super stud cast, four different 8x10 photos, the thrilling lion novel called Brutus, personally autographed to you if you wish, and t-shirts still on sale, only $15.99 with absolutely free shipping. Got to check it out, tnstud.com. And subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind to get the best in old school wrestling anywhere find 395 videos the last 114 stud casts 52 stud stories 101 short rides with the stud and the new ask the stud 14 question and answer show debuts saturday the 17th we talked about that earlier of 2024 all this exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. It is the best deal in old school wrestling. And the final word will be yours, Stud. Well, I'd like to thank everybody, obviously, for their support, and especially those people that send in questions for the Ask the Stud shows. Uh, I really appreciate your, your support, too. And, uh, and you, you, gosh, you sent some great questions. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. Uh, take care of yourselves, everybody out and others out there, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.